If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. But sad or merry, I must leave it now. Farewell. I gotta just love those lines. I think that's the kind of stuff, say what you will about Lord of the Rings. Like those are, that's an awesome sentiment. And I think it's one that, that champions peace and friendship over greed and violence. That has got broad appeal. Welcome, friends, to episode 242 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss J.R.R. Tolkien's 1937 novel, The Hobbit. Tolkien, James. Yeah, I think we learned that from when we did the bonus episode, the Tolkien biopic. Yeah. How, how much do you think we're going to say it the, the right way versus the wrong way if you had to bet a split on it? I don't know. 80-20? 80-20 wrong way? Incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. 80% yeah. Of the At time. least. Uh, yeah. Tolkien is definitely the way I say it casually and I've always heard it said. And I don't know. Like, I want to respect the guy's pronunciation. So I'll try Tolkien. Um, but it's just tough when uh, I feel like pop culture has has taught us all the wrong way. And that, that kind of gets to the roots of some of the, what I want to talk about with the story is that like it's so this story so ingrained. And I think probably both of us, but definitely myself, like in terms of just being like a, a I don't know, something that I can point to that was like a big turning point in, in like my storytelling journey, you know, like something that. I'll, I'll bring it up now. I was going to mention it later, but just I had this moment where I was contemplating like what life would look like without having come into contact with this so early on and, and when I was a kid and and yeah, just like what the story means to myself and it it's emotional and it like it draws you in in this really, I think, unique way and in sort of a monumental way. But then it's also like such it's so impactful for all fantasy today. Like what would fantasy look like without J.R.R. Tolkien? I mean, he's widely considered the father of high fantasy. Some people say grandfather. Um, you know, he his works are foundational for what, especially in the West, we think of with, with high fantasy in particular. And you look at games like Dungeons and & Dragons, and you look at many things that have just continued that legacy, and you can tie it right back to him. Now, he, he didn't invent all this stuff, which we'll talk about where he was drawing from, um, but, you know, popularized it, and... We spent a lot of time talking about Tolkien in our Fellowship of the Ring. I think our first Fellowship of the Ring episode. Um, and then maybe, I don't know, we probably touched on it <laughs> again throughout. We should mention the number yeah. of times that we've covered J.R. Tolkien projects. Uh, just the list. Then we did Fellowship of the Ring first, followed by Two Towers. And we when we did them, as we always do, novel into the film. Yeah, and we did three episodes on each book. So to four total episodes so that's that's 12 for the first three movies. Plus we did the bonus of um Ralph Bakshi's animated. Animated and then we did the uh Rankin Bass animated. So that's two additional and then we did a Tolkien biopic. So I think that's up to like 15 
episodes on him now. Uh, we also did a Michael Moorcock essay talking about Lord of the Rings. If you want to count that as a 16th episode, this would be number 17. Holy cow. We're looking at at least like 20 to 30 hours worth of Tolkien <laughs> and, and this world, uh, I think. Absolutely. So there's lots of content out there if you want to find out our era thoughts on that. But the reason I bring that up is I was able to find some really cool background stuff that I want to touch on. But I'm not going to be, like, describing Tolkien's life in detail because I feel like we've already covered that. So um, just just to make you aware of what we're going to do here. Um, I wanted to ask you about your actual history reading this thing. Like, when did you – can you remember when you first encountered it and in what form? I came to it after the first uh, Fellowship of the Ring film came out, okay. Peter Jackson's first Fellowship. So 2001, started reading – the Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, and then realized The Hobbit, I should start there. Went back, read The Hobbit before finishing Fellowship of the Ring, and it kind of like informs everything, obviously. The Hobbit struck me like perfectly. I was like, oh my God, this is, I, I, I think so I appreciate it much more. So what was your age more. at that time? I would have been like eight. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you would have been, yeah, that's that's like target age range for this yeah. book, honestly. So Eventually, I don't know, I should have looked up the year that this came out, but there was a Game Boy game that came out, the Hobbit Game Boy game. Really? And I played the absolute hell out of that game. That's and it was cool. so cool, too, because it was very book accurate. Like you, Some of the things that maybe were cut out from the films that we've, we're going to talk about at some point, that game was so fun, and it really like allowed me to get immersed in, in that world. Okay. Uh, so for me, uh, this is one of my foundational fantasy stories right like as you talked about it 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 laid a lot of groundwork for me and my love of fantasy it was not the first one i encountered um i know my mother read to me the lion the witch and the wardrobe which at some point we'll cover chronicles of narnia chronicles of narnia yeah and um some red wall and so, so there were some other fantasy that i think that actually came in before however as long as i can remember I I was watching the animated version, the animated adaptation of The Hobbit, and it was one of my favorite movies. We had recorded it off of the TV, like uh, with your, you know, VCR, record something that was like aired with commercials and stuff. And then like you would try and like either stop it so you didn't record the commercials or what have you. Um, I, had so, a, I had a Star Wars trilogy uh marathon recorded off of tnt for personally that's like my reference for that yeah and and that was how i watched it and i think i wore that tape out we maybe bought another version of it because i wore it out if i remember correctly like it was one of my everybody has like a movie that they watch like a million times as a kid i had a few of them i guess 101 dalmatians was one of them for me i watched the lion king every day yeah but eventually it was the hobbit and hobbit was was a big one and then um i i remember my parents telling me it was a book but it wasn't until I was in this program uh, through school called Book It. Did you participate in the Book It program? I don't think so. Is that like gifted kind of thing? No, I don't think it was through gifted. Anyway, the whole point of Book It is you read these books and you get credit for them. I think you have to take like a comprehension test. I may be mixing it up with uh, something else, but I think that's how it worked. And then you would get credit for it and then you would get um, a free personal pan pizza at Pizza Hut. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I No, I, I totally remember that. Yeah. Okay. I don't think I did a lot of it, but I remember that being a thing. I was all yeah. about it, man. Yeah. Love pizza. Love Pizza Hut. And uh, I, w- you know, was definitely doing that to read. And like, I was looking for books and then I found The Hobbit. And I remember I had an illustrated edition that is now lost to uh, time. Who knows whatever happened to that thing. Um, but that was the first, my first experience reading it. But I had seen it so many times already. 
in the animated version. That's really interesting. So you actually watched it before reading and I read it before watching it. So we have different Hobbit-like exposure. Yeah, but all of that was before Lord of the Rings. I hadn't read or seen Lord of the Rings at all. Um, And in fact, I didn't read Lord of the Rings until after I'd seen the first movie, I think. And then I read... That's kind of where I was at with it. I started Fellowship and then jumped back to The Hobbit. So You know, it's it's messy and it's funny because I feel like if you listen back to our Lord of the Rings coverage, I probably claim some different stuff about when I read and saw each movie and like read each book because I honestly don't remember. It's I know I didn't finish the series originally when I first picked it up. I don't remember how far I got. Anyway, it's kind of messy, but because of that, the adaptations and the the you know source material has always been kind of blended in my mind and i remember reading this this illustrated edition liking some of the illustrations but then also comparing them to the animated film i'd seen and like that was the version of it in my head and being like this is weird it looks different i don't know if i like this anyway it's just you know i wonder if that has anything to do with like my fascination with adaptations maybe i don't know yeah I remember going into a bookstore and kind of there wasn't a lot of people that were pointing me to like fantasy novels or just like specific novels in general. I was reading a lot of like whatever came my way. We would go to the library a lot. I would pick out books that way. And I remember going into a bookstore and I'd my parents didn't, especially when I was very young, didn't like buy me a ton of things like that. But I remember seeing The Hobbit on the shelf and knowing that it was like associated with Fellowship and like grabbing it. And I have this vivid memory of grabbing it. And the cover was like this all green and it's just got like bag end on it. And uh, like asking if we could get it and they got it. So, so it's this weird thing where I think back to it and it, it feels very like- This one? Momentous. That that uh, that looks like it. I think uh, so. I'm holding up my Maybe. copy into the camera so James can see it. It, it. It's all green and it has bag end on it. So it's similar, it might not be the- They've done a lot of editions of this book over the years. <laughs> Would my memory of it was like more like less illustration, just like a really small circle. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean they've done all kinds of stuff like that. But so, so it, it, like thinking back, just like how random the universe is, and how like I happened to pick it up, and I probably would have read it eventually, just based on like my interest and everything. But I picked it up knowing that it was somewhat associated with Fellowship, and then like my parents bought it for me, which is was like kind of a big deal at the time. And just reading it, I remember it really, really digging its hooks into me in a way that not many books had at that time. And yeah, and so that's part of what I was talking about earlier is just I remember I think of it so fondly. And even today when I when I read it, there's a certain bias that's there in just for it to, to like be predisposed to love the story, I think. And it's like it's hard to kind of step outside. But I do feel like I, I can step outside and I have some new perspectives on it that I'd like to bring up. Yeah. Um, with this most recent reading. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's hard not to view this thing through nostalgia, you know, rose tinted glasses because I have so many fond memories of it growing up and it does feel foundational for me. Among with other works, like I, I want to shout out Jane Yolen's, uh Dragon's Blood, I think it was called. It was just like a very early fantasy novel for me. So it's not the only one. It's one of a few, though, that were early on and set me down this path of loving fantasy, being interested in Dungeons and Dragons, um, wanting to be a fantasy author when I was very young. Um, I, I've been, I wanted to be an author and specifically an author of fantasy, probably since elementary school yeah. when I first kind of discovered that it was a job someone could theoretically have. I was like, well, that's what I want to do. And it was paleontologist and then it became author basically. <laughs> I love that. that. That's um, awesome. So I, yeah, it's an important work for me, but then that also reflects how important I think it has been for Western literature and especially fantasy, high fantasy literature. Um, and it is, I think, important to distinguish between the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Um, they are actually, you know, different in significant ways, 
one is a children's book and one is not. Um, you know, one 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 is this like adult epic essentially, and you know, The Hobbit it is is a prequel to The Lord of the Rings, and it's often kind of thought that way. But it was written long before, so when it was written, it actually was not positioned to be that way. He had not written Lord of the Rings yet, and in fact, um, as we'll get into, there was some revisions made to The Hobbit to make it line up with The Lord of the Rings uh, later, so that it would be more consistent. It's an interesting story, and, and that's something I want to kind of dive into is like specific details about The Hobbit that we probably didn't touch on too much when we were covering The Lord of the Rings. Um, but I think that's actually a good a good place to start, too, is like this is a book for kids, and it was designed that way from the jump. And so because of that, it has a different tone. Um, it has this omniscient narrator who is sort of playful and addresses the reader directly and says things like, you know, found his way to this uh, through the tunnels as well as you and me might find our way to the nearest post office. Golf was invented by hobbits with an orc head rolling into a hole. Yeah, it's these fun little moments, right? These little jokes and, and, and it kind of breaks the immersion a little bit, but also in like a playful way. I think the idea is that in some way, this is a history of our world, like a, an ancient history of our world or something like that is trying to be said in this book that's kind of dropped for anything Lord of the Rings related. A little bit. Um, the tone of it's definitely changed. And this this sort of playful tone, I actually read later that Tolkien actually retroactively was not a big fan of it. And it seems like he kind of wished he had done it differently. But at the time, it was considered um, one of the selling points of the novel as praised. And I think it made it very approachable for kids, right? So kids are picking this up and they find it approachable. They, they find the tone lighthearted. And um, yeah, it, I think it, it lessens some of that like bewilderment of being in a fantasy world where everything's different. It, it, it really works as a children's novel um, in that respect. So let's just, I guess, briefly give general thoughts of how we, how we felt reading it now as adults who've covered, you know, Tolkien for 20, 30 hours, however many we've done now. Um, how did it change for you as an adult reading it? I was really concentrating on form, I think, this time and like the structure of what Tolkien was setting out to do. And I read somewhere, I don't even, long ago, that he was writing this for his children, right? Like this was sort of a story that was being built up kind of for his children. And then we'll, eventually we'll get into realized, the backstory of yeah. that. <laughs> so... Uh, I, I was kind of viewing it through that lens and thinking of what he, he was reading this to his kids as bedtime stories. And I was noticing that the structure of like the chapters were almost like episodes uh, where it's like very self-contained. A new uh, entity is introduced, some sort of threat or some sort of like adventure that they're going through. A new uh, setting seems to be set up in each area, in each chapter. And, and that feels very readable to like someone reading to their kids. Like, let me read this chapter to you. It'll make take me maybe half hour to an hour to read it. And it'll be this one off adventure that will go on and will follow Bilbo through like his overarching adventure, but also like one one kind of quest at a time. Um, which I thought was, it's so readable. It makes it very readable. It feels like there's like um, checkpoints that you're hitting uh, that some, something for about like reading when you're young. I think that 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 helps you feel like you're moving along. And then just the like we talked about the references to our world and some of the riddles and the word games that he's playing and this introduction to like what you can do with the written word other than just deliver information. The way that you can sort of play with that. I, I thought about, like I said, the legacy of the story and like what fantasy would have been like if without Tolkien and what 
my journey like i just can't think of because i'm so in love with these sort of fantasy worlds and and a lot of the things that people have taken and run with um and a lot of the stuff that he was pulling from you know those classic stories that are very archetypal just thinking of like what it means to me and how i when i think of a dragon i think of first lord of the rings when i think of any goblins or or elves like i'm thinking first of tolkien's elves and you know i don't know that I don't know. I, I do worry that he sw- sort of swallows up the market. And I think we've talked about that a lot, the fantasy market in kind of unhealthy ways at times. And people can be stuck in just Tolkien's world. But it is it, for for my experience. And, and I've continued to read outside Tolkien. Obviously, I recommend that heavily. Um, it, it is just such a uh, amazing story that that exists as it does. And I think of The Hobbit as like an archetypal fantasy story. And I was thinking about it in, in comparison to things that he was referencing, like your Beowulfs and things like that, that he was clearly drawing from. And he there's this subversive thing that happens in The Hobbit where you're following along this journey. This sort of straightforward journey is, would be you get to the dragon and the gold and the riches and then everything sort of ends happily ever after. But there's the, then there's this also added on like fourth act almost that it subverts a lot and it changes what you think of good and evil a little bit and um, like how the characters have developed and uh, you know not not to say it's not spoilers I don't think to say that like the dwarves are kind of have something that happens in the fourth act that makes you question them well I wanted to bring that up actually just let me stop you there I think we go full spoilers for this Um, this is not going to be coverage for children we're going to curse during this coverage um so this is not you know unless you're as the movie you know McElroy say cool babies um you know it's not it's not designed for children and also i think at this point everybody knows the story of the hobbit i I think it's safe to say so yeah let's let's talk about things specifically okay so the dwarves go from being this merry band that they're all traveling with and we start to learn about the greed of the dwarves and as we get closer their greed is more clear and we, it takes Bilbo, our main character, realizing that the people he's been traveling with and the people he's friends with, he might have to disagree with and go against. And that, I feel like that's very anti the sort of uh, story that Tolkien was referencing in a way. So he's kind of moving along the medium in a way that I think people have taken his work and moved it along into newer avenues as well. He And I, I'm not saying that he's the first person to do something like this, but it does, in a story that I think of as very archetypal, it does feel subversive to add on this extra bit where the hero... Our hero Bilbo looks at the, his companions and sees there there's some foul they're fallible and decides to go against them kind of near the end and and like I think it helps to show obviously Bilbo's arc as well like his growth over time and the way that he's willing to stand up for what he believes is right and and sort of like you know the end of the story would be you kill the dragon you get the riches and everybody's happy but there is some something about like the status quo that I think is actually broken in The Hobbit, where that's not what happens necessarily. They ultimately we do end on that happy ending, but not before a lot of other things fall out. And yeah. there's some some real drama, political drama plays good out. drama. And, and yeah, and really, it's a lot darker than than what the children's story sets out to tell in the very yeah. beginning. I think it, it builds to something a lot more complex. OK, so for me, uh, reading this book as an adult, definitely changes things a bit especially with you know all the coverage we've done and the way that I read things for the podcast in specific um, because I'm looking for themes I'm looking for hidden meanings I'm looking for especially when it's something I've covered this much right and I'm this familiar with I'm trying to dig deeper 
and I'm trying to look for like what else can I prize from the pages of this book. And in some ways, this book works really well doing that, right? Because I see the philology background. I see that this is sort of a meditation on storytelling in general and and mythology and the way we um, teach lessons to children. Um, there's so many cool things like that that you prize out of there. But then also to me, uh, you know, it became very apparent that there are no women in this entire book, basically. Um, the, a lot of the fantasy races being employed here by Tolkien have very unfortunate real world um, comparisons that people have drawn and that uh, Tolkien has sort of owned up to on different occasions. And, you know, obviously we've talked about the orcs and the goblins in the past of Lord of the Rings, potential problems there. Um, goblins also uh, could represent, uh, I was reading German, the Germans at the time and, and sort of their industrial um, anti-nature kind of yeah and, and looking back at world war one his his experience in world war one with that but then also i've seen him basically say that the dwarves are are jewish and mm. he broadly based them on jewish people like their history of being driven from their homeland um wow. and then when you think of it that way and you start looking at the way they're described and their quote-unquote greed and like all this stuff it gets pretty messy pretty quick the one of the biggest things that happens with this too is he it would be one thing if there were like stereotypical things within the races, but then he goes as far as to say, this race is evil, yeah. this race is good. Yeah. You know, and that that spectrum that he creates there, which I think like if you draw the comparisons is problematic for sure. Yeah. So, you know, we're looking at a book now that's almost 100 years old. So, you know, it's always going to be, you know, when you start viewing things from the lens of modernity and you look at something that's never going to age like perfectly. Um, but I think, you know, there are a lot of people out there who've in recent years and, and I'm sure have been ringing the bells for a long time now are saying like, hey, maybe maybe there's some stuff we should, you know, be looking at here and not not completely blindly lionizing. And, you know, even beyond that, I was thinking about how personally I think the character character of Bombor taught me some fat phobia stuff from a very early age. Because Bombor is considered, he's kind of the, the, the butt of a lot of jokes. He at times is seen as like a burden on the others. He is, you know, he's, it's just, he's just not dealt with in a great way. And he's the only character who's repeatedly like described as being fat. And, you know, it's this kind of stuff. It's like, that doesn't seem like a big deal. And a lot of people are probably rolling their eyes. And like, I agree, it's not that huge of a deal. But when you're very, very young... And you read that, like you start to internalize things, and so like I'd be a little bit hesitant. Like if I read this book to a, to my kid, if I had a kid, I would want to talk to them about this and specifically and say like, hey, let's not take the long wrong lessons from this. It's a product of his own life and his own upbringing and the stuff that he was around and internalized. Um, it's not not necessarily forgive it, but like I think it does kind of explain it and like the the society he lived in. You know, he was in academia. He was a professor at um, Oxford. He was It was a, a college of Oxford that he was at, uh, Pembroke College. But it is a constituent college of Oxford. So we're talking about an Oxford professor of Anglo-Saxon studies and philology, right? Like, he is around a very specific crowd. The college he teaches at, boys only, and was boys only until 1979. And this is a 300-year-old college. 
So, you know, this is like, he's in this world, you know, he went in the army, which was obviously only men. So like, he grew up in a very patriarchal society. And that is reflected in his writing and, you know, for better and worse, I think. And I think mostly for worse, but like, I think it also explains it. It's a good example of like where we should be aware of these things, right? Like being, being aware of our own environment and what we're what we're internalizing and what we see and are and are not exposed to. Yeah. Anyway, so I don't want to be a bummer with it because like ultimately I had a good time. It is it is a important novel for me. Um, like I said, foundational. Um, it's just like, you know, when you when you start looking at it through these through these lenses as you're trying to figure out like, what am I going to talk about on a podcast? It's hard to ignore when you start thinking about it in that way. Um, but there's a lot of like great themes in here. There's a lot of really good lessons I think that can be imparted to kids. And, and I'm excited to like get into those as we just, you know, actually discuss the plot. But before we get into the plot, I think let's touch on some of these background details I was able to find. So as I've already said, professor of Anglo-Saxon, I guess studies. I don't know. It doesn't really say, at Pembroke College um, at the time that he wrote this in the 1930s. At the time, he had published several poems in magazines and small collections, which included Goblin Feet and The Cat and the Fiddle, a nursery rhyme undone, and its scandalous secret unlocked. So the, uh, a poem from that is called The Man in the Moon Stayed Up Too Late. Tolkien's original song, which was imagined to be set to the nursery rhyme, Hey Diddle Diddle, The Cat and the Fiddle. So to that sort of rhyme scheme and tune. It was first published in the Yorkshire Poetry in 1923. So this is 14 years before The Hobbit. However, he would later reuse it in an extended form in his 1954 to 1955 Lord of the Rings as a song sung by Frodo Baggins in the Prancing Pony Inn. So he literally had Frodo sing a poem that he wrote in the 20s. In the extended edition of Peter Jackson's 2012 film, The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey, the dwarf Bofur sings it at Elrond's feast in Revendell. So that's something to look out for. We watched the extended edition, Bofur singing a poem in the, in the extended version that is the one of, one of Tolkien's first published works, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. Speaking of the background of this, right? He had been writing these letters to his children, and they're called The Letters from Father Christmas. These would later be published, I think posthumously. Um, but he would write these letters to his kids about Father Christmas, which included his elves. It included warring gnomes and goblins and a helpful pair of polar bears, alongside the creation of the elven languages and an attendant mythology, including the Book of Lost Tales, which he had been working on since 1917. So he was building this mythology... And it was all interconnected and related. And then he started doing these these letters from Father Christmas to his kids. Speaking of those letters uh, to, uh, from Father Christmas, Paul uh, H. Coker suggested that the creatures in the Father Christmas letters may have been a precursor to those which appeared in Tolkien's later works. For example, it was suggested that the wizard Gandalf may have been developed from Father Christmas. So if you think about it, Gandalf is kind of a Santa Claus figure. Kind of makes sense. I can see it. So he's developing this mythology around Father Christmas and his elves for his kids, right? And like it, it, one, they're like on an expedition and they get attacked by goblins. And then like that's all when he's developing this mythos. So in a 1955 letter to W.H. Auden, who Tolkien became friends with, 
Um, That's a famous poet, if you're unfamiliar. Um, Tolkien recollects that he began work on The Hobbit one day in early 1930s when he was marking school certificate papers. He found a blank page. Suddenly inspired, he wrote the words, In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. By late 1932, he had finished the story and then lent the manuscript to several friends, including C.S. Lewis and a student of Tolkien's named Elaine Griffiths. From Griffith, it would pass through several hands before arriving at Stanley Unwin, who then asked his 10-year-old son, Rayner, to review it. So Unwin was a publisher. Unwin paid his 10-year-old son a shilling to write a report on the manuscript, and Rayner gave it favorable comments, which settled in Unwin's decision to publish the book. And I have 10-year-old Rayner's comments here. So this is the first person, the first kid to ever read The Hobbit, if you think about it that way. Bilbo Baggins was a hobbit who lived in his hobbit hole and never went for adventures. At last, Gandalf the wizard and his dwarves persuaded him to go. He had a very exciting, he misspelled exciting, time fighting goblins and works. At last, they got to the Lonely Mountain. Smog, the dragon who guards it, is killed after a terrific battle with the goblins. He returned home rich. The book, with the help of maps does not need any illustrations and is good and should appeal to all children between the ages of five and nine. That is his son. His son would go on to become a publisher, by the way, and has since passed away. So this was a long time ago. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you're setting your child up for success if you're having them turn in book reports when they're young like that, right? Paid him a shilling for it. So yeah, I don't know how much that is. I assume it's not very much. I just thought that was, again, like a little fun detail I didn't know. And, And that's one of the things that convinced him to publish it was his son's favorable review of it. So, Tolkien's works show many influences from Norse mythology, reflecting his lifelong passion for those stories and his academic interest in Germanic philology. The Hobbit is no exception to this. The work shows influences from the Northern European literature, myths, and languages. Examples include the names of the dwarves. But while their names are from Old Norse, the character dwarves are more directly taken from fairy tales, such as Snow White and Snow White and the Rose Red, as collected by the Brothers Grimm. The latter tale may have also influenced the character of Bjorn. So I thought that was interesting, right? Yeah, you know, it's a former project. Former project, tying it back to Brothers Grimm. Even the animated film dates back to the 30s too, so um, Tolkien may have seen that. And it's interesting because I remember as a kid, that was like one of the things I had seen before I saw The Hobbit was I had seen Snow White. And I was familiar with all the dwarves, the seven dwarves, right? Mm-hmm. And then I get The Hobbit and there's these 12 dwarves. And I remember thinking like, oh, that's just how dwarves are, I guess, in fantasy. Like, it, it, it like seemed like it, it must be the same thing. And sure enough, it is <laughs> potentially, right? Like a heavily influenced. Uh, I read about a bunch of other influences, um, but one of the other big ones is Beowulf that uh, Tolkien is actually credited as being one of the early people to really treat Beowulf as like a serious piece of literature and sort of donning a fantasy um, as opposed to just like a historical text that's of note. Specifically in Beowulf, there is like a big sequence with a dragon that people have said is directly echoed by um, Bilbo talking to Smaug. Did you read Beowulf in school? I didn't actually. I think we read a, okay, I, 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 let me correct myself. I believe we read a selection from it, but I don't think we read the entire thing if my memory serves. And that would have been in like seventh or eighth grade. So middle school. 
I think it was middle school or early high school for me as well. I think it might have been middle school. And I remember comparing it in my mind to Lord of the Rings and and The Hobbit because I had read those before reading Beowulf, which was wildly interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it goes to show that, like, Tolkien, yes, he's inspired by mythology. He's inspired by, you know, uh, languages and so forth. But he also is inspired by stuff that came before him by other authors. Um, You know, there are these other works of fantasy that that have influenced him. I, you know, um, Samuel Rutherford Croc- Crockett's historical novel, The Black Douglas, um, and there was a necromancer um, who, you know, and Sauron was kind of based off of his villain, uh, a character named Gilles de Retz, apparently. I don't, I don't know. The, I'm not familiar with The Black Douglas. Um also, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings are similar narrative style uh, and uh, to the novel. And overall imagery has been suggested to have it had an influence on Tolkien. Um, he was particularly influenced by George MacDonald's The Princess and the Goblin. And many people have noted similarities between The Hobbit and Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth from 1864. So there, there is like he was influenced by the literature of his time. And, and I think it's it's good to remember that, you know, as much as we lionize it and sort of mythologize it, like he's just a, he's a man. He's a smart guy. He's a professor who loves language and he loves mythology. But he also is reading the literature of the time. And he's he's sort of fusing all of that, bringing in his own experiences in the First World War. And this is what comes out of it. And And I think the idea to make it a children's story ultimately was a brilliant one. And, and part of the reason why this this went on to become so successful. Now, to tie it to Lord of the Rings, in December of 1937, The Hobbit's publisher, Stanley Unwin, that was the father of the kid we talked about earlier, (laughs) asked Tolkien for a sequel. In response, Tolkien provided the drafts for the Silmarillion, but the editors rejected them, believing that the public wanted, quote, more about Hobbits. Tolkien subsequently began to work on The New Hobbit, which would eventually become The Lord of the Rings. A course that would not only change the context of the original story, but lead to substantial changes to the character of Gollum. In the first edition of The Hobbit, Gollum willingly bets his magic ring on the outcome of the riddle game, and he and Bilbo part amicably. Wow. In the second edition edits, to reflect the new concept of the One Ring and its corrupting abilities, Tolkien made Gollum more aggressive toward Bilbo and distraught at losing the ring. The encounter ends with Gollum's curse... Thief, thief, baggins, we hates it, we hates it, we hates it forever. Massive change to the Riddles in Dark, specifically chapter. There, I was reading about some other small changes that were made to line up with the mythology that he was continuing to develop over the years that followed. It's funny because when you mentioned earlier in this episode that there were changes that were made from different editions, I, I was in my mind immediately thought there's no way he changed anything from Riddles in the Dark. That seemed like it was like exactly where you wouldn't want to change anything, but... Turns out that was a that was a good edit, but because because that one ties so importantly, but he had not developed the Lord of the Rings yet. He didn't know that the Lord that the One Ring was going to be so important when he originally wrote it. He went back later and edited it that way. So that also shows like the you know the an, an interesting thing about like storytelling, right, and how things can change over time. I heard him later sort of in universe explain it as the original ta- telling of the tale is the way that Bilbo would lie, tells it, and say is what happened. And then, like, what is in there now is what really happened. But that's just an in-universe explanation. What's interesting to me is that the idea that he was able to do this, um, that he was able to make these changes. Part of it is because when the book originally came out and was published all throughout the Second World War, 
there wasn't that many copies and it would immediately sell out. But like paper, there was a paper shortage. And so it wasn't until after the war ended that they were able to start producing a lot more editions of this thing. And I'm not sure exactly when the changes started happening, but um, he was developing the Lord of the Rings and then he was able to start making changes so that there wasn't this massive readership who had read the early editions because I think it was a very rare book to find. You know, the original run only included 1,500 copies, I saw. So, um, yeah, if you have one of those original 1,500, it's, it's worth quite a bit of money now, I would assume. Especially if you have a signed edition. Everybody check your bookshelves. Just, just <laughs> yeah, double if you check. happen to have a 1937 yeah. edition of The Hobbit, uh, take note. Anyway, so I thought this was a lot of interesting little little kind of tidbits I hadn't heard before. You know, Gandalf is possibly like kind of a Santa figure. Yeah. Um, you know, all these different influences, tying it to Brothers Grimm. This is all kind of new to me, and I thought it was neat. But yeah, I mean, if, if you're ready, I guess let's get into the plot. Um, we're going to try and, and, and move through this pretty quickly because we're going to be touching in on the, the plot a lot more in the coming weeks as we cover uh, the different versions. But I would also like to say that I think the most faithful adaptation and maybe I'll change my mind once I see it again, is the animated one. It's a beloved one of me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you watch it. <laughs> we're going to watch it, and it, we're going to release it on our Patreon. So if you want to hear us discuss the Rankin-Bass version of The Hobbit, that's where you're going to find that. Um, and then we will be t- covering the three films, the three Peter Jackson films, and we're going to be bringing on um, some old friends and uh, potentially a new friend as well um, to help us get through the movies um, is the way I'm putting it. Um, but at the very least, to help us cover the three movies. Um, and uh, it should be fun, regardless of what you think of them. I'm hoping that our, our episodes will be fun. We'll talk about background for the movies, and we'll have um, some different perspectives to bring to the show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I um, I would argue that the, the Hobbit Game Boy Advance video game <laughs> that came out from Sierra Entertainment might be one of the most faithful adaptations. There you go. <laughs> I, I want to know if other people have played this game or if it was just me in this weird vacuum, but... <laughs> I never heard of it. It was a fun game. At the time, it was really fun. All right. So let's start off with the first chunk of summary, and then we can dive into our thoughts. Gandalf tricks Bilbo Baggins into hosting a party for Thorin Oakenshield and his band of 12 dwarves, who sing of reclaiming their ancient home, the Lonely Mountain, and its vast treasure from the dragon Smaug. When the music ends, Gandalf unveils a map showing a secret door into the mountain and proposes that the dumbfounded Bilbo serve as the expedition's burglar. The troop travels into the wild. Gandalf saves the company from trolls and leads them to Rivendell, where Elrond reveals more secrets from the map. When they attempt to cross the Misty Mountains, they are caught by goblins and driven deep underground. Although Gandalf rescues them, Bilbo gets separated from the others as they flee the goblins. Lost in the goblin tunnels, he stumbles across a mysterious ring and then encounters Gollum, who engages him in a game, each posing a riddle until one of them cannot solve it. With the help of the ring, which confers invisibility, Bilbo escapes and rejoins the dwarves, improving his reputation with them. The goblins and wargs give chase, but the company are saved by eagles. They rest in the house of Bjorn. All right, let's stop here. A lot gets covered. A lot happens in this story because it is an adventure. Like you said, there's, it's kind of episodic. Every episode brings in a new element of the world. And as you pointed out, I think this is a great way to introduce a fantasy world to someone. Because you you start somewhere kind of small and familiar. And then there's like increasing levels of danger. 
moments of respite. And then you're introducing like a new thing. Like there's like one or two new things in every chapter that get introduced. And then it's broken up with all these songs and poems that keep the tone sort of light and fun. And again, the, the narrator um, is engaging with the reader in a very direct way. The language isn't too advanced, um, which you could definitely get from a philology professor if you're not careful. So, you know, this is just set up to be incredibly inviting. And it all begins with what I think is one of the most iconic openings in all of fantasy. I think it's safe to say it is. And I'll read it real quick. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell. Nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hole. And that means comfort. One of the most iconic openings of all time. Yeah. Very evocative. You know, you, th- you think of what it is right away. And and different too like i i mean i don't know i hadn't encountered anything like that before this idea of a hobbit like creature but i was young when i read this so i you know think i would be forgiven for not this idea of the hobbit and then the shire that we get in the beginning of fellowship we've talked in the past about how like this could be this pastoral sort of conservative look at moorcock you were thinking about moorcock while you're reading it i was too man like it got in my head but this is interesting because I think in a different way, they talk about like Bilbo's took ancestry a lot and how like he has that urge to adventure. Yeah, Frodo, and I think this is said in The Fellowship of the Ring, like Frodo is still in love with the Shire and everything. Like when he set out, sets out on this adventure, he's like dragged into it. I think there's something about Bilbo that wanted to adventure. And like, of course, it was like half of him was split, but he was, I wonder what it's saying if we analyze it through Morhawk's lens, if it's, this is a person who leaves so more willingly and and really develops into the adventure and then wants to return at the end but is is significantly changed and doesn't have doesn't seek the pleasures i feel like as much as frodo kind of looks to when he returns so we've touched on the idea of uh i think it's joseph campbell's hero's journey um several times i think this the, the hobbit is like a clear example of that um you could also look at star wars there's many other examples of this out there a lot of very iconic pieces of work um i'm not someone who believes that you know that the hero's journey is the end all be all that that's what we should be aspiring to that people should be writing their books this way i think it's a more mode of storytelling it's a very popular mode of storytelling at this point maybe it's getting a little played i want to see people if they're going to engage with it find ways to subvert it um but i mean you look at it right a hero gets called to action usually usually says no first and then has to be sort of convinced to go, goes on an adventure, through the course of the adventure, is forced to grow, to change, and then uh, triumphs over some sort of challenge, and then returns home as a changed person. And we see all of those elements are present in this book, and they're also all present in Lord of the Rings. So I think uh, Tolkien is very deliberately structuring both the entirety of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit in the same way. And if you look at it, the stories have a lot of similarities. And I saw someone breaking it down, like beat by beat, 
a lot of the stuff that happens is the same. There's there's like being forced underground. There's the the battle of the five armies versus the battle battle of Pelennor Fields, ending on a mountain. You got Lonely Mountain versus the Mount Doom. Um, you know, you got the eagles. You got uh, Aragorn being similar to Bard as this like uh, new king being restored to a, a, a country or a city to its former glory. There's all sorts of similarities when you look at it, and it's like he kind of retold the story in the Lord of the Rings of the Hobbit. He just made it, I think, more adult. And what the reason I bring all this up is it brings me back to the character of Frodo, who, in my opinion, is a more nuanced and and perhaps complex version of Bilbo. Because I agree, Bilbo at first says no, and at times misses home for sure, and thinks how he's in over his head. But ultimately, it seems like Bilbo's having a great time, and he sort of embraces this new role at a certain point. He also like ends up being a bit more formidable than I think Frodo ever does. Like he he actually wins some fights and does some big feats of heroics. Yeah, against the spiders say, like, and stuff. Like he definitely has moments of heroism in different ways. He, he, talking with Smaug, I remember as a kid was inspiring to me. Like oh my, like the bravery it would take to go in alone and trade these these verbal barbs with Smaug, who's incredibly s- scary. An amazing scene, but also just like an incredible moment of heroism to me of our bravery, I guess I should say. Um, and yeah, I mean, time and again, we see that we see um, the way this character embraces the call to action and the call to become a hero. And um, it's so fun to me that Bilbo in turn becomes a framing device for the, the Lord of the Rings. And he's sort of present to pass it on to Frodo and I was looking, you know, you look at the time frame and like this comes out in 37 and then Lord of the Rings is in the 50s. So Tolkien sort of aged up the story along with the age of his audience. So he was like all the kids who read my books when I first really or read The Hobbit when I first released it are now, you know, 20 years older. So I need to age this up now and make it an adult story. And it's so fascinating to me the way that that shaped Lord of the Rings and its relationship to The Hobbit, you know, and and now that we're so far away from that, I think it's easy to forget the idea of like, hey, my my readers are now older. You know what I mean? Because like now it's just readers of all ages have been reading this thing for 100 years, but he didn't know it was going to be like that at the time. I, I was mentioning when I read it, I was like very young. I was like eight years old when I read The Hobbit and, and I appreciate it so much more than The Lord of the Rings at the time because The Lord of the Rings was just too too much, too complex, too nuanced. Yeah. In, it's funny to say that like Lord of the Rings is very nuanced, but at the same time, like it, it wasn't the like romping adventure that, that I totally agree. The As Hobbit a kid, was. I yeah. picked up Fellowship after reading The Hobbit. I remember thinking like I think my parents were like, hey, if you liked The Hobbit, you should read Fellowship of the Ring. I was like, OK, I love The Hobbit. Let's do it. And I remember picking it up and being like, I don't know if I like this. <laughs> <laughs> I like the Shire stuff. I remember like blowing through the Shire stuff. Yeah, it was interesting, but like it was it was not written in the same fun way. It was not as approachable. There was a lot more complex and like kind of dry at times. You know, uh, it's written like it's being written by a professor of philology to some extent. Um, you know, as much as I do, I, I came to love Tolkien's prose. It's not as approachable for a kid by design. But um, I think that that was a stumbling block for me from making that transition. Yeah, I want to talk about the relationship of the characters in nature, because I think that comes up often. We talked about it definitely in our Lord of the Rings coverage a bunch. Um, 
in this story, you know, we flash by a lot of really important things that would be later touched on more in felt in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, things like Rivendell and with Elrond and, and like we get this character and we, we like Elrond. He's an, is an interesting elf, but we, we, he's there and gone in a chapter. I think we might see him again near the end. It is. It, I like the way it mentions like, oh, he's, but he's a key figure in many other tales that don't come into this yeah. one. Which, yeah, That's really that funny. Cool. Yeah. And then the mentioning of like there that the, to talk about the framing too of of the whole story and the f- playful nature of the narrator the way that he's like there is a battle of five armies that's coming eventually but we'll get to that we'll, near we'll the end of the book. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, foreshadowing, uh, which you know you hear that battle of five armies. Ooh, like that's exciting as as a kid and you read that as any reader. I think it's exciting when you hear that. Yeah. So and, and then tying everything to nature, like uh, the elves seems like, like of course the elves are very nature. Uh, associated in the Lord of the Rings, but something about here they're like singing and frolicking in the in the woods, and and it's a lot much more, more fae, like it seems like to me. Yeah, yeah, I can see that for sure. Especially the wood elves. Yeah, and they keep and they talk about the dwarves a lot with like the earth and the mountain and the rock and like th- those. They they I think at one point they talk about the trolls being of the of the mountain, like being a part like like a, yeah. Well, when they return when they get turned to stone, it's actually said that they are returning to stone. Because it's referencing old mythology where trolls of myth are formed from the stone itself. So he's referencing like actual myth when it comes to them. And I feel like the trolls we see later are less that. Or maybe I'm just thinking of the movies. Trolls in the movies are not like that. (laughs) Although maybe in the original, maybe in the Hobbit movies, I'm talking about like Lord of the Rings movies. We see all kinds of different trolls. Cave troll uh, in the fellowship. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a different kind of troll, I think. I think, but but I'm not I'm not a you know I don't know the Lord that well to know the difference between the different trolls. Uh, so yeah, keeping the, the nature theme, we do get these like pure beings that are like only motivated by nature too, which like the eagles. Like learning more about the eagles in the Hobbit is obviously a big deal for to understanding the Lord of the Rings eagles and like what goes on with the eagles there. Um, and it's basically stated that the eagles won't get involved unless they feel that like nature is being soiled in some way. Like the 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 orcs, or sorry, in this case the goblins are like corruption. They represent corruption and like taking down the purity of nature and a lot of that kind of stuff. The trees are getting burnt down, right? At this right. point, so I don't know if that influences it. So let me back up a little bit. I want to touch on the opening of of the dwarves arriving at the house. Um, this this was so winning to me as a kid i I loved it you know they're again it reminds me of snow white and the seven dwarves they're all showing up they're fun but then you get thorin oakenshield who's really serious and he's got this like really cool backstory you got gandalf there who's mysterious wise figure he's the archetypal mentor type type figure and then you get in my opinion the greatest fantasy song of all time and the dungeons deep song um i think this is the best song in all of fantasy i i mean like i think it, it, i would be open to hearing some other contenders but i think this is it this is my favorite song in all of lord of the rings and all of the hobbit this is my number one song i absolutely love this thing and when this song was in the trailer for the original hobbit movie i had chills and i was so excited because i love this i song. have chills thinking about it <laughs> yeah it's so good right now yeah 
It, it, I have no question. It's my favorite as well. And when they did that for the film, it was, it, and I think it plays, like they sing it in the film, but I think it also plays during the, the end credits. And it's just, it, it's incredible. I, I was going to mention this when we get to Unexpected Journey, but when the, that trailer came out for Unexpected Journey, I told everyone that it was going to be my favorite movie of all time. I was like, this is about to be the greatest movie that I've ever seen. That's how excited I was. So that's a little teaser to what we're going to talk about next week when we get to the first movie. <laughs> I'm really interested to see what you think of that animated film. We'll have to touch on it a little bit in the main coverage, just in, maybe in reference to the movies that we will then watch. But um, sure. I also want to think about what we would do differently. Since we're covering yeah. this book, me and you have thought about adaptations a lot. If we were to be at least like consultants on a major adaptation for the Hobbit, how would we advise them to change things so that you don't run into a lot of the problems that ended up plaguing Peter Jackson's movies? Yeah. I've been thinking about this for like 10 yeah, years. So, so I have a lot of answers already. <laughs> so we'll talk about this. Yeah, next. We'll week. have to talk about in our movie episodes and that's gonna be something we'll, we'll hit on our guests to talk about some too. Okay. So anything else from this opening? I mean, there's a lot here again, we're going to kind of, you know, get move through this plot kind of quickly, but we'll have plenty of opportunities to talk about it more in the future. Um, one thing I really I thought was of note is the song. Um, they're getting like taken by goblins down into the dark, and it's a really kind of dark, like scary moment. But it's broken up with this song about down down to Goblin Town, and it's got these like onomatopoeia, crack the bones, and, and like snap and crack and pop, and it's it's like uh, there's a poetry to it that is fun and playful that lightens the tone a little bit. So it's not quite as scary as I think it otherwise would yeah. have been for kids. S- still, still terrifying to think of like sleeping in a cave and like everybody, like, like your the ponies being taken and then everybody just being like, jumped, well, the ponies get, like, I think all the ponies get killed several times, several times. <laughs> Which yeah. I, the ponies <laughs> don't have very good luck this journey. No, no ponies don't do well. Um, yeah. And then we get riddles in the dark, which like, let's take a moment to talk about riddles in the dark absolutely amazing scene one of the moments like sometimes i wouldn't watch the entire movie but i would watch through the riddles in the dark scene because that was my favorite i love the game of riddles um that they play with each other is so good in the animated version of of the hobbit that version of Gollum is the one that like will always kind of be first in my mind which is wild considering andy circus's Gollum is so iconic now i still go back to that one because that's the first one that i saw and it imprinted on me in this moment where he's out paddling in his little weird boat in the lake and he comes to the shore and they have this this back and forth of riddles and he's so menacing, you know, it's referenced that he's eaten goblins, like these scary goblins we've been seeing, like this creature eats them, like, and I, I don't know, he's just, I was so unnerved by Gollum, I had no idea what he was, and then all the weight of the ring and its importance. Well, that's, that is interesting too, because to talk about the first time that we read it, you had no idea how important the ring was. I did. Like I had seen Fellowship. And so I was like, oh, this is an extremely important item that he's just found outside of the fact that there's this riddle, this danger going on with this Gollum right. creature. But what's cool is it's all there. Like the the influence of the ring on Gollum's mind is something that was brought back in revision. We talked about it. It's a revision. But doesn't matter ultimately if you're experiencing it any time after the 50s, essentially, because when you're reading it for the first time, it's there. And so that was how it was for me. And even though I didn't, I knew there was something called the Lord of the Rings. And I think my parents told me that it's about that ring. So like I knew that, but that that's it, you know, but the, the importance of this magic item was there. And like all the magic items they encounter, like Glamdring and, and you know, like all these cool swords and like the Mithril and like 
man, that I love that stuff as a kid. And like it, it just lit my imagination on fire about how cool magic items could be. And, and then also the way it ties into mythology. You know, Sword in the Stone was something I grew up watching and so I'm thinking of Excalibur and I'm thinking of Glamdring and Sting and all this stuff. Well, And they, they even talk right away about how like these these swords have the history and the orcs fear it. So someone wielded these back in the day and that like gives you so much. And when like when the Goblin King recognizes the sword and it's like he, you know, he gets all mad, like it's so cool. Right. The riddles in the dark uh, portion is definitely the most memorable for me, so especially good. growing up. Like it's what, what I would come back to when I would think of The Hobbit. And I was thinking this time about how this is another moment where Tolkien is doing that thing that he did in The Hobbit that he doesn't in The Lord of the Rings, where he's kind of tying this world into our world. Like these riddles existed in our world that he pulls in to have Gollum ask and have Bilbo yeah. ask. And they're also like, you probably already know the answer to this one. So Bilbo asked an easy one. I totally didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, dude, some of those were, even today. Yeah. I, Maybe in the 50s, you are familiar with these riddles, but I was not. I've read these stories many times and each time I remember the easy ones and I remember a few of the bigger ones, but there are definitely some where I was like, what, what's the answer to this one again? I forget. Time is one that always yeah. sticks with me. I love the way this actually is echoed later in the Smog uh, conversation. And this is like some of my favorite stuff from Tolkien is these two characters testing each other, finding out things about each other, trying to outwit one another. So good. And it's like almost like this is training for Bilbo for what comes later. Well, I also love that Bilbo, like the time answer is specifically like he accidentally falls in. Yeah, like yeah. it's like more time, fate more time. Is, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the fate is like putting its hand on the scales for Bilbo so many times yeah. that you're just like he just happened to say the correct thing to a random riddle of all the possibilities. Of the, what the answer could have been? Yeah. Okay, and let's talk about Bjorn real quick. Um, he's a character that I do not believe is in the animated film at all. He gets cut, but uh, really interesting because it's this weird blend of like children's book. Like he has like talking dogs that like serve them food and like a lamb comes in chatting with them and like all of these like m- you know fun creatures he is a you know he transforms into a bear but like he gets sucked into the story so Gandalf's able to fool him by bringing in more and more dwarves over time like very clever right um but then Bjorn sneaks out while they're sleeping there and goes and finds a, a goblin and a warg uh, to confirm their story, and they're like, what happened to them? And he's like, take a look. And he shows outside, and there's the head of a fucking goblin and a, the skin of a warg. So he skinned a warg and beheaded a goblin. And I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> children's And then he displayed this and displayed as a it, you know, it's like It's like up on his like fence or something. I'm like, damn. So um, very interesting character. The skin changer, too, um, who, who I want to touch on again as he comes back in the, the final act of this book and has a you know pretty important role. I was making a point of talking about the nature, too. And this is another character that has that nature oh, for sure. twist to it. Kind of a Tom Bombadil type, but very different, too, though. He likes these characters and, you know, these, like, mythological, seemingly immortal Santa Claus-like characters. And it's very interesting what these kinds of characters do to stories. We've talked about this in the past as well. Um, and, and, like, the motivations and when when entities will get involved and when they won't. It seems like Bjorn just hates goblins in the works. Yeah, but ultimately, I think a lot of it comes down to orcs mean anti-nature yeah. and every all these entities are so tied to nature. And I think yeah. it's it's an interesting commentary because of, you know, he saw that the horrors of war and what man was capable of. And well, it's even said in this book that goblins went on to create mass machines of war. So, like, I think the direct tie between goblins and the German war machine, I think, is there. And that's that's what other critics have said at the time. Um 
So in industrialization, we know, like, Tolkien, not a fan. <laughs> yeah. And ultimately, nature, it seems like, is on the side of good, is almost a part of what Tolkien's getting at here with, like, eagles being involved and these people, these these entities that normally wouldn't get involved. But then at the last then second... You, you see how that leads to the hippie movement and, like, all these environmentalists taking on Lord of the Rings and saying, yeah, this is our stuff, even if, like, Tolkien himself didn't love that. And I think it still <laughs> is. Yeah, and I, th I do think it is. I think that that's been the case yeah. you know he it, it is true he he whether he right. wants to admit it or not that's what he was writing like those those sensibilities are the same yeah you know and it's it, it that goes to a broader conversation about like the way certain works get so big that they become a piece of culture we talk about this with stephen king a lot um or we should stephen king is like a piece of americana now as much as he is a living author still writing but like he he is like ingrained into our culture and the Lord of the Rings is like that, but but for like all of Western culture, maybe just entire world culture, like such an influential figure. And at a certain point, those works are bigger than the man. Those works are bigger than any prejudices the man might have had, any political beliefs the man might have had, because they have influenced so many people who have taken them and run with them. And the one thing I do admire about Tolkien, I mean, there are many things, but something I do admire about Tolkien is he fully embraced that. And that's why he, I think he didn't like allegory because he found allegory reductive. He wanted people to be able to in interpret whatever they wanted to from it. And and that's what we've seen people do. And I think we've realized over time, like we, I know I remember in our early coverages with when he made that comment, we felt like it was a very strong statement to say he was against allegory. But I think it's what you're saying. I think it's more he wants people to, to be more open to interpretation. And, and he doesn't want people to reduce it and say, look at the dwarves. They are Jews. Like he doesn't want that. Even though, like, you can argue, and he's he's admitted that he was influenced by it, he didn't want things reduced that way. Ultimately, you can't escape the yeah. the influences of your time, basically. And yeah, that maybe that's about. maybe that's wrong to like use it as an influence and then try and tell people not to make that comparison. That's that's a, certainly valid. Um, let me read the next paragraph here, so we can keep moving through the plot. The company enters the Black Forest of Mirkwood without Gandalf, who has other responsibilities. In Mirkwood, Bilbo first saves the dwarves from giant spiders, and then from the dungeons of the wood elves. Nearing the lonely mountain, the travelers are welcomed by the human inhabitants of Lake Town, who hope the dwarves will fulfill prophecies of Smog's demise. The expedition reaches the mountain and finds the secret door. The dwarves send a reluctant Bilbo inside to scout the dragon's lair. He steals a great cup, and while conversing with Smog, spots a gap in the ancient dragon's armor. The enraged dragon, deducing that Lake Town has aided the intruders, flies off to destroy the town. A thrush overhears Bilbo's report of Smog's vulnerability and tells Lake Town resident Bard. Smog wreaks havoc on the town until Bard fires an arrow into Smog's hollow spot, killing the dragon. Okay, so before we get to Smog, let's talk about Stuff in Mirkwood, maybe. Let's talk about talk mm -hmm. about the the barrel writing scene. Interesting to introduce elves, the high elves, and then also the wood elves, right? And the differences. And it seems that there's some corruption going on within Mirkwood, obviously, right? And I think we get confirmation of that. I wonder also if the necromancer being added to the end and sort of that's where Gandalf was. I wonder if that was also something that was added in to kind of connect to I Lord of the Rings. I think it was. Like that kind of connective tissue stuff um, and then a lot of references to stuff from different ages was later amended to, to line up with stuff he had been writing in the Silmarillion and so forth. Yeah. 
but it seems like creatures of dark are there and wood elves and elves in general are are you know champions of of nature sort of prevailing and it seems like they're having they're maybe even being a little corrupted but having to deal with this like forest that's being overrun by giants like evil spiders and stuff i guess and I don't know. It's and it seems like you can't don't touch the water, like because what's his name fell in and he falls asleep. It seems like a very dark and ominous place for elves. Oh, yeah. Mirkwood definitely is. It's all and for that. elves to be inhabiting though, you know, and this that that idea. Yeah, it's like kind of weird, right? But I guess they're because they're beings of the forest. They're they can coexist in a way with it, at least survive. Um, I, I so parts of that stand out for me from here. Uh, there's a moment where Bilbo climbs to the top of a tree as a scout mm-hmm. and he's surrounded by these butterflies and he's feeling the breeze and he's seeing the tops and he's like this green, like ocean of, you know, leaves around him. And I just remember that all that moment was so beautiful. It's in the animated film and it always struck me. And it's like a, it's like a cool lesson on perspective. I think of like, if you can just get above things sometimes, like you can get a whole new perspective on it. And it made, it made Mirkwood, as much as it was still scary, it was like knowing that that was up there, like lessens that a little bit. You know, it's funny. This time I didn't think anything of it. But when you said that, it kind of reminded me of how I felt when I first read it. And and I did find there to be like a lot of significance to it like that. What's just beyond our perception. If we, are, we could just see it, that kind of thing. Um, and then, yeah, they get captured by these elves. And it's interesting because like, like you said, like I kind of viewed the elves as like the enemy here for a while. But then like Tolkien does a few times say like, you know they don't treat their prisoners that badly because they're not orcs. Like they're 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 pretty good. They're elves. You know it's kind of a misunderstanding. Um, but then uh, I love the idea of of Bilbo just sneaking around, invisible. You know, like living there for a while, just like stealing things. And then like he wears the ring a lot. And then um and then the barrel scene. So like this uh, the scene is it's I don't know. It's 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 so funny that like I feel like it gets completely overplayed in the movie. But like. I thought this was so fun as a kid. The idea of riding these barrels down the river, it just really appealed to me. I wanted to do it. It seemed fun. Um, so this was a moment that always stood out to me as a kid, even though I think now it doesn't seem like that important of a moment, but I loved it. Yeah. I Like you said, I like the fact that Bilbo is like organizing and orchestrating it all and they're like sort of jumping down. Well, we're seeing and- him rise to different challenges, right? We see him, you know, rise to fight the, rise to fight the spiders we're seeing him, you know, beat Gollum in a test of riddles. We're seeing him, you know, have to like figure out a way to get to to save the dwarves and get them out. Like he continues to be challenged and rise to the occasion. Bilbo takes a huge step in in besting Gollum and escaping, and then he's telling all the dwarves about it, and they're loving it. They think it's amazing that he's done this, and they're seeing him in a different light. And he starts to see himself in a different light, and I think that allows him to have the courage to fight the spider and defeat the spider, and that gives him another step up in his confidence, and him like developing as a character and as a hero, really. And then you know we get to this scene where he's saving all the dwarves, like he's realizing his uh, what he is capable of, and I I think that's always really fun to see, especially for a ch- children's story to be these lessons to be. Told. And then they go to uh, Lake Town. They get welcomed and sort of supported by the people of Lake Town. And they're like, hey, you know, he's going to come. He's going to turn the rivers to gold. And, you know, this is great. They go to the mountain and Bilbo, I think, is is riding high on that confidence. And he's feeling like, man, I'm for real. I'm the burglar, you know. 
Gandalf has left now, by the way. The mentor has left, so you're sort of left to to your own devices and you have to save yourself because Gandalf saves them several times early on. And the dwarves have borderline made Bilbo their leader. They're like at t- they're looking to him for what to do next. It's like him and Thorin are like co-leaders for sure. Yeah. So they send him in and I think like he's scared for sure, but he's got this confidence and he goes in and he starts talking to Smaug and this version of a dragon just imprinted on me. Like I, I love this version. Such a great moment in fantasy. One of the great, I think, all time scenes. We talked about riddles in the dark is great. I think the moment where Bilbo and Smog first start talking to each other is right up there. Um, you know, maybe even more important. It's just so it's so good. I love the way it's overconfidence on Bilbo's part that actually gets the better of him because Smaug is smarter than he realizes, and he keeps kind of like playfully throwing out these little riddles because he thinks that like he can do that and get away with it. And Smaug like starts make like figuring out stuff about him. He's like, "Well, you're the thirteenth one because you've mentioned the lucky number. You're you know you're you've mentioned Barrel Rider, so you're you're you know the, the people of Lake Town helped you get here." And like he is able to start sussing out all this stuff that Bilbo thinks he's being really clever about. Um, and so I love that because it just shows how smart this ancient dragon is. And, um, you know, at the same time, it's just being menacing as hell and huge. Um, and then, I, yeah, I don't know. I love the way that he, like, knows the very weight of his entire horde. So, like, as soon as a cup is missing, he knows it. Um, just so many good things here. And that was another hubris moment, too, right? Like, he brings this cup just to prove it to the dwarves. Yep. And then basically incites the violence and rage of, of Smog and Smog. Who like, goes and destroys a town. Probably yeah, kills hundreds, everyone. if not thousands, of people. So, there's that. <laughs> There's that Bilbo. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, not saying it's completely his fault or anything, but, uh, you know, he was a little cavalier, you know, and, 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 and I like that that's set up, though, because like you said, like he's riding high at this moment. He's got all this confidence. And I think this is a moment of like, oh, shit, maybe I shouldn't have been so confident. And he even realizes that. But Smile gets killed by Bard. And I remember even as a kid being kind of shocked that it happened so quickly. I was bummed. I was as a kid. I remember being like, "No, the dwarves and the and and Bilbo have to defeat the dragon." Yeah, not Bard, like some random guy who we just met with his black arrow. I don't know. It's interesting because like I, I'm fine with the way he goes down, but it just feels like it happens very quickly. And and Smaug is so menacing and so immense and and impressive, but it does leave leave the door open for the Battle of Five Armies which otherwise wouldn't really have room in the story if if we dra- dragged out the Smaug stuff. Oh, I get it. I, I and, and today I understand it. But as a kid, I remember just being bumped like uh, that, that because I thought the heroes because like I said, it's sort of subversive. You think the heroes that we've been following will defeat the dragon. That doesn't happen. And there's this power vacuum that's left behind and it gets more complicated. Well, they're inside the, the mountain and they're like getting all this armor and gear and they're like getting like decked out in the, the, the stuff of their ancestors. And they're in this like defensible position and they're afraid that the dragon's going to return. And you keep thinking like, yeah, he's going to return and they're going to have to fight him. No, <laughs> I guess killed yeah. my part. <laughs> and this gets back to that other thing where like the, each character and each really scenario that's that's introduced is one chapter. So like we get smog, we get like the introduction of smog with with Bilbo entering and sort of speaking with them. And then he comes out and that's when he freaks out. That's when Smog freaks out, goes, attacks the village, and gets killed. So it's really like we have Smog for two chapters, even though it feels like he would be the final confrontation or he he would be so, like across many different chapters. It's very self-contained, and uh, yeah, interesting way to tell a story for sure. It does. It feels 
pacing wise really quick. And but I think you want that in a children's novel, right? Like Yeah, yeah, you can't you have to keep it moving. So I listened to this as an audiobook. Oh, me too. I meant to mention yeah. this, yeah. And so what's funny is I think I'm I'm sure I've I've listened to this as an audiobook before, but I listened to it with a different narrator. I didn't look up the previous narrator. But the new audiobook I listened to was Andy Circus. This is a recently released version of it. I guess he recorded himself doing a reading of it for a charity um, a stream or charity something. I remember hearing about that. Yeah. Maybe during COVID or it was during COVID. Yes. Yeah. And then I guess it was successful, and then the publishers ended up wanting a version of it, so he re-recorded it for the audiobook. Yeah. That's the one I listened to as well. I was really taken by it. I thought it was good, but. I remember there being things I liked better in the previous audiobook. Um, I think there are certain things Andy Circus. He has a very gruff voice, and yeah. there he did. I mean, he did all right with Gollum. Like it was fine, you know. Like that, like, <laughs> well, I was gonna say, of course, the riddles in the dark section. You know, when you get Gollum's voice, you're like, holy shit, because it's it's literally Gollum from the movies, yeah, right? So it's uh, very obviously very very good. Um, I think he does a very good smog. Um, but mm-hmm. I just wanted to give context so that when uh, the Raven shows up and starts conversing with Thorin, um, I'm going to blame this all on Andy Circus because the way he pronounced it, but that's Rock, son of cock. And <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> I, didn't hear, I didn't even, re- that didn't even register in my brain. I love that. Though. I am Rock, son of cock. <laughs> I love that. Hey. And I'm like, aren't we all? Um, yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, we do get a lot of talking animals, right? Uh, including these ravens, including the thrush. Um, and, and you're talking about all these, like, uh, you know, nature represented by these talking animals and dogs that can walk on their hind legs, apparently, with Bjorn. Are you ready for the final paragraph? Yeah, I'm ready. When the dwarves take possession of the mountain, Bilbo finds the Arkenstone, the most treasured heirloom of Thorin's family, and hides it away. The Wood Elves and Lakemen request compensation for Lake Town's destruction and settlement of old claims on the treasure. When Thorin refuses to give them anything, they besiege the mountain. However, Thorin manages to send a message to his kinfolk in the Iron Hills and reinforces his position. Bilbo slips out and gives the Arkenstone to the besiegers, hoping to head off a war. When they offer the jewel to Thorin in exchange for treasure, Bilbo reveals how they obtained it. Thorin, furious at what he sees as betrayal, banishes Bilbo, and battle seems inevitable when Thorin's second cousin arrives with an army of dwarf warriors. Gandalf reappears to warn all of an approaching army of goblins and wargs. The dwarves, men, and elves band together, but only with the timely arrival of the eagles and Bjorn do they win the climactic battle of five armies. Thorin is fatally wounded and reconciles with Bilbo before he dies. Bilbo accepts only a small portion of his share of the treasure, having no want or need for more, but still returns home a very wealthy hobbit roughly a year and a month after he first left. Years later, he writes the story of his adventures. Okay, so let's back up. This, I think, is a really interesting part of this novel. It gets into some like political things going on. We see, as you were talking about these dwarves that we've been with and have been our friends and, and we've spent all this time alongside, they get corrupted by the wealth of the mountain. And when they say no to Bard, I, it was shocked me as a kid. I was like, how, like, of course you should share your wealth with them. Like you literally, they helped you. 
first off. You know, it's not like they did nothing. They literally helped you when you had when you were like coming out of the barrels. Well, not to mention they also killed the dragon. And they killed the dragon that you would yeah. not have the yeah, you would not have the treasure if they had not done that. The idea that you can't give them what they asked for like one twelfth of it, and they're like, No. They literally just want what they need to repair the town. Yeah. It, ridiculous. And I and, and and they call it the dragon sickness, I think it's called. But it's greed, right? And that's really interesting, right? That the the idea of this and like the the wealth and what seems to be the prize at the end of the journey causing so much problems. It does say something interesting about wealth in general and about money and about the effect it has on people and society. And uh, one of my favorite parts, like I said, is that lesson that's being told to children, right? Is that like you you need to suss out what you believe to be right and wrong and not just go along with what your friends are thinking or what these, you know, and, and like it's clear that most people have the moral compass to understand that like you you would give the, the the certain amount of money and then he literally betrays the the dwarves rightfully obviously it's a big moment right and like i wouldn't have believed this from bilbo if we hadn't seen what he'd been through i think to this point and like the the knowledge that he saved the dwarves and like he has convinced himself rightly so that he knows he knows what's right and wrong here and that he t- he is a, he's willing to act on it in a moment that that makes me really like bilbo honestly because he knows what it's going to do to his friendship. Totally. And and it's like it could potentially cost him his life. Yeah. He realizes. But one of my favorite parts of the entire novel is when Gandalf just so happens to be there yeah. to, to witness all of this when he hands over the Ark. What is it called? The Arkstone? Or? Arkenstone. Heart of the heart of the mountain. Yeah. yeah. And he hands this over and gives them basically leverage against Thorin. And then Gandalf is there to be like, I made the right choice. You're the, you're the best. So well, also, Gandalf loves to do this where like... <laughs> Thorin says something like, "Well, if if Gandalf was here, I'd I'd curse him for yeah. giving us you as our as our burglar." And he, and of course, Gandalf like throws off his robe and he's yeah. like, "Gandalf is here. <laughs> I am here." Very dramatic. So dramatic. Yeah, waiting for his his entrance, his dramatic entrance. <laughs> All right, Gandalf. I'm, what if he was here? <laughs> uh, uh, one thing I thought I noted because I I had completely forgot about this character in the movies, but I was like, "Okay, where's this goblin?" So I figured out, and then I did some reading. There is a there is a goblin, or an orc. I, can't, I, I don't know. I mean, I know they are different, but I often lose track of which is which. There's this this goblin slash orc named Bolg. Bolg is one of the leaders of this army, if not the leader of the army that attacks uh, of the goblins. And there's like goblins and bats and wargs and all of that, right? And they fight him off, and it talks about how he has this bot these bodyguards. And it ends up being the dwarves that do battle directly with the bodyguards and they get surrounded. And while they're fighting, Thorin is trying to kill Bolg and gets mortally wounded. That's why those are the wounds he's dying from at the end. It's from attacking Bolg. Bolg is then killed by Bjorn, who shows up as like a giant version of a bear. And he's like ripping into the army and like single handedly just like tearing apart all these different um, all these different orcs and goblins. Amazing. Um, now I did some reading. Bolg is the son of a of a goblin named Azog, or orc, one or the other. Um, and Azog originally died at this battle called the Battle of Azanulbazar. Azanulbazar. So that battle is then brought into the movie, and they have Balin be present at the battle. I'm not sure if he was present at the battle in the book. 
may have You're talking been. about the movie that we're getting to. The movie we're going to get, the Peter Jackson Okay, movie. and you're talking about, like, the white orc that's, like, introduced in the movie? Yeah, yes. okay. So, Azog in the movie is the father of Bolg, and Azog in the book dies at the battle that we mentioned, and his son, Bolg, is the one who leads the armies. So they've okay. taken a character who originally died at this other battle, and they bring him into into the movie. So that's going to be something we're going to be talking about as we see some of the changes. I was trying to look out for the characters and figure out, like, where do they get these from? I think that's what happened, is what I understand. I will admit, when we get to this movie, like, I haven't seen this original uh, An Unexpected Journey more than maybe twice. I think I saw it once in theaters, once out. And so it'll be really, I, I don't remember a lot of it, and I've said it in past episodes like I'm going to be going in with like really open expectations and I'm really going to try to suss out what exactly happened here what we like and what we don't like because I think I think that there's obviously a, a rhetoric about the Hobbit films at this point but I think we should try not to bring in the baggage and try to just like I can't I don't know man I'm you know y- you say similar things things to me about the prequels uh, and 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 uh, Star Wars, and I struggle, man. Um, there are some. Don't get me wrong. Episode two, Attack of the Clones, is by far yeah. the worst Star Wars movie. I don't want to get into that, but like, yeah. <laughs> my point is, I have a lot of preconceived notions that I have built up over the years about these movies. I'm gonna come in with them. Um, I remember dissatisfaction. I remember there being times of things that I liked and thinking that it was getting it was getting sort of a bad rap. Um, we'll touch on those as we get to. The I movies. think that the narrative behind. Battle of Five Armies and Desolation of Smog gets lumped in with Unexpected Journey, but we'll see. I want to see like how I feel about them as individuals rather than as a trilogy. Okay. So we'll see how it goes. So I want to talk about Thorin's death scene. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, this, this made me tear up as a kid. It what, It's always been tragic to me. I love that it's he's had this moment where he cast off Bilbo and said, you know, I never want to see you again. I'm going to, you know, like, if you stick around, I'm going to, you know, take that armor off of you. And and I think he told him to set, he's like, I send him off without any friend, and he goes without any friendship or something like that. Basically saying that, right. like, there is no. So, so heartbreaking. Yeah. And then he wakes up and the arm, you know, he's fallen, he's like gotten knocked out, I believe. He gets hit by a stone. He's knocked out, but he falls, he falls asleep or is unconscious with the ring on. So he stays invisible. So only when he wakes up does he take the ring off and get found. And then he gets brought to the to the tent. And we get these lines from Thorin. And I think he gives some of the best lines in the entire book, and thus some of the best lines and most iconic lines, at least, in all of fantasy. And he says, and these are his final words. So I think that adds even more import to them. He says. If more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. But sad or merry, I must leave it now. Farewell. I gotta just love those lines. I think that's the kind of stuff that say what you will about Lord of the Rings. Like those are that's a awesome sentiment, and I think it's one that that champions peace and friendship over greed and violence. That has got broad appeal, and the idea that that's where Thorin comes back to. And, and there's a lot of regret in that, which I, I think on the, on its surface you don't realize this is a character who has done the opposite of what he's saying, and now on his deathbed realizes his his mistake. That makes it very yeah. very powerful for me. Yeah, and he also, in addition to those words before that, he like apologizes to Bilbo for everything he said, and he said you were in the right, you did the right thing, and and then goes on to say that. And I do think it's n- worth noting that that's kind of how we see the elves in this story. The elves do sort of seem to be like dancing around and appreciating life and not worried. There doesn't seem to be a lot of greed there. But the hobbits too, you could say. 
the hobbits yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting to just think of that the elves are willing to fight for that right you know to be able to still enjoy to their party. lives like that so it's, it's a right to party yeah like the bc voice and yeah. so like that's what the elves ultimately that's what i think their theme song and that's what i think of when i think of them is the bc voice <laughs> that's what they were singing yeah gotta hear the elves sing yeah and, and yeah that sentiment of like enjoying life is just like it's so important to come back to it, as much as it feels like sort of very obvious is i see it so we all see it so often it's like people prioritizing not enjoying life just for the sake of whatever they get, you know, wrapped up in. Yeah, just such a great moment. So just a couple other things I want to touch on. Bjorn uh, becomes a great chief and his descendants, um, he's kind of like the, the leader of this area and his descendants, some of them can even skin change. It says that like some of them were, were great people and some of them were not so great. <laughs> and I was thinking like, I think Bjorn goes on to found House Mormont. That's kind of yeah. the way I was thinking. <laughs> got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Bear Island, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think uh, Martin was influenced. And, you know, whether or not Bjorn in particular was in his mind when he was designing the the Mormons, I don't know. But, you know, they're kind of described as having a physical appearance that's kind of similar to Bjorn in this book. Yeah. I don't think that you can understate the, the obviously, the influence yeah. for all fantasy. Like, uh, Well, in this battle of five armies, like the, the fighting and the... the having to ch- come together to fight a common foe, like that's all through Lord th- or uh, Game of Thrones. Like, I mean, that's absolutely there. So I did also love, obviously the, the battle of five armies isn't just like a free for all. It's, you know, men, dwarves yeah. and elves all coming together, coming together and yeah. what the good versus the evil. And, you know, we've already talked about the problematic elements of the races being evil, but like the, you know, the the although they're quibbling over the gold and all this other stuff, when there's a common enemy, they like band together for the greater good. It seems right. Um, now we do get a description of what Gandalf was up to while he was away. This may have been something added in the revised editions. I'm not sure, but that he had joined together in a council of wizards and they drove the necromancer away who we later find out, I guess is, is Sauron. And he was driven away temporarily from the lands, but he were, and like you said, when he gets driven away, Mirkwood gets less like evil, I think. Yeah. It's interesting to think about. I was looking at the map. I've been watching Rings of Power. I won't say any spoilers or anything, but just the idea of like the areas on the map that have been like, oh, there's some some darkness, some sketchiness over here. Let's uh, let's either like, and it's sort of ignored often, where it's like everyone could band together and just like snuff the stuff out. But anyway, being in Mirkwood, building up his power, it seems, and then obviously we we know that he's gonna shift down to like uh, m- you know Mordor area. His his stronghold for Lord of the Rings, which takes place what like a hundred years after this or something like fifty, sixty, or seventy years after the Hobbit. I think it. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly of the amount. It's something like that. All right, man. So then we just get the 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 final return home where um, Bilbo. Uh, also, by the way, Philly and Killy die in the, yeah, <laughs> the battle. Off we, screen, we don't hear a lot about it. Um, that's another thing to note, obviously going into the movies, we, most of battle of five armies takes place off screen. Yeah. So I, cause he gets knocked out during it. We see some of it. We hear about some of it later. Ultimately it's only like, I don't know, five or 10 pages, probably total pretty short. And then that gets expanded into an entire movie. Now there's a lot in here, so I can see why they thought to do it. But again, we'll talk about that movie when we get there. Um, okay. So yeah, the, we get the return home, which is an important p- piece of the hero's journey. And as he goes, people leave his company along the way, and he arrives back at home basically with Gandalf, and then Gandalf leaves right before he gets all the way home. And then he gets all the way home, and he finds out that, like, 
other hobbits are there, like, trying to sell off his stuff and Bag End's being ransacked. Um, and he has to prove that he isn't legally dead. And there's, like, this big kind of legal battle that goes on over time where he has to buy his own stuff back. Um, and it's just funny because, like, not only has he changed, the, the world he left wanted to write him off. And he has to sort of assert himself as he comes back. Well, we know the ways of hobbits, too, is, as to, like, they, they look down on anybody who does go on an yeah. adventure. Well, but I again, I just came back to, like, how much this is echoed in Lord of the Rings, right? Like, with with the desolation of the Shire, like, returning home and having stuff be wrong and then having to, like, assert yourself and, get, like, fight to get it back sort of thing. Like, it's a simplified version of it here, but so much of this, the the beats of these of this are... are, are directly echoed in Lord of the Rings. It's very yeah, very true. Something about Bilbo appreciating and enjoying the company of elves and wizards and dwarves who come to visit him more than hanging out with his hobbits and that that are in town with him and stuff like I I love this idea of like the peaceful times for Bilbo between his large adventures and then just like sort of carrying on these friendships with with all these different people that he met along the way and everything i've always thought that was really nice yeah it is and you know you return to that homey feel and and all is kind of back being right in the world and then you get balin come by at the end and hang out uh him and gandalf and and uh and bilbo and they get to talk about their their past and the adventures they had and it's just it's just a cool moment he gets to write his story and you know we know eventually he's going to get involved with frodo but um, I always just love Bilbo as a character and, and, um, you know, his journey is so neat and tidy in a way, and it's so perfectly encapsulates the hero's journey. There is something just sort of appealing about it. Um, so yeah, I, I love the story. A lot of it is super nostalgic for me and I think it always will be. Um, but yeah, this is a, this is a special one for me and I love this book. Um, even, even though I, as I was reading it, I could like tell you exactly what was about to happen the entire time. Cause like, I know this story so well. Um, I still just had a good time with it. Um, so, you know, highly recommend, I guess <laughs> ultimately is where I'm at. I'm going to go watch that trailer now, uh, for the <laughs> unexpected journey. Yeah. So speaking of, um, we are going to be tackling the first movie coming up here soon, but we're also going to be doing the animated version. Um, I guess I'm not sure um, which one we're going to do first, but we're going to be doing them pretty close to each other. If you wanted to hear that animated episode, which we will be releasing this month, you're going to go over to Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film, and you can find that bonus episode and all the other bonus episodes we've released over the years. Um, Speaking of Patreon, I wanted to shout out some new patrons we have. It's been a little while since we've done this. Uh, Alexander O, Adam G, and Gloria C., Thank you for becoming patrons um, in case we haven't said it yet. Uh, shout out to you. We appreciate your support. If you wanted to help out this podcast in another way, we love r- rating and reviewing. That helps the podcast out a ton on whatever platform you listen on. It really helps to get the word out. Yeah, I noticed that we actually have enough ratings on Spotify now to where it shows up. Um, our, our, our little rating is on there. So yeah, it, whatever whatever app you're on, most of them have a way to do it. We'd appreciate that. Um, connect with us on social media. We are at Ink to Film on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. We also have a group uh, on Goodreads. It's like a reading discussion group. You could join that. Uh, we're all over the place, and we'd love to connect with you. However, uh, wherever you prefer, come find us. 
All right, we are going to, about to take our own journey across multiple films uh, with many guests that we're going to bring along as a fellowship of sorts to help us along the way. And we hope that you, the listener, will join us as well. And until next time, keep adapting. Great.